Aloha, North Kohala. It's Holly Allgood from KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. You're listening to Tutu's Talk Story. And I'm very excited. I have uh, Nani Hussey Svensson here today, who is a quiet, humble, powerful woman. She is a keikio ka'aina, a community builder with deep roots to her Hawaiian ancestry, a practitioner of Hawaiian traditions and protocols, an extraordinary steward of the land, magnificent gardener, florist, and restaurateur. So, and I know you are many other things. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Nani. And I can't wait to hear, tell us where you were born and what your childhood was like growing up. Well, first of all, Holly, thank you for having me on this show. Um, it's nice to be able to share my story. I was born in Waiapuka, which is um, close to where the Kohala Ditch, where the, um, where the ditch kayaks enter into the ditch to do, do their um, adventure. That's where I lived. And um, interestingly, when they take the tourists up to see the site, they say, this is Hussey Falls. Because, and we never called it Hussey Falls, but they call it Hussey Falls because we lived right above that ditch. So we lived and worked on the ditch. It was a 24-7 job. What did you do on the ditch? Well, my parents, um, they managed the water. So they regulated the amount of water that came through the ditch um, to enter the fields. They had to have so many million gallons coming in a day. And so when there was big storm, heavy rains, they would um, have to go to this point on the ditch where they would have gates to block the amount of water going through, then whatever they blocked, and they would use four, four-inch square blocks that they would fit between the gates, and they would raise it or lower it. And when it got lowered, that means less water was coming through with what they wanted. And that backup water that was building behind the gates would then empty out over the stream. So that was something that they had to do. So if the rain happened at 2 o'clock in the morning, my father would jump in his four-wheel drive Jeep and with his headlamp and um, rain slick, um, rain, rain clothes, he, he would go to that site and then do that. So it was pretty interesting because we managed um, about... I want to say maybe three miles of ditch that we had to maintain. And so that meant maintenance meant cleaning. So we cleaned. There were some hillsides along the ditch. And so my mom would place each of us, because there was six of us, but five of us was uh, would be ones who were working. I have four sisters and one brother. And she would designate us a distance and she would give us two sickles and we would be along this ditch trail and we had to clean the trail with uh, sickles and so it was really manicured 
we also picked up the rocks that was on the trails, and then my father would come with the mower behind us. So it was that well kept. And how, how old were you when you started helping out? Five. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that something? So how long did you stay there? We, well, my parents, they first, when they first settled, they were in the Third Valley. So they had two children in the Third Valley. Then they moved out to, when you go to Pololu Valley and you look um, at the lookout and you look straight back, there's a cross point to where the valleys cross over each other. And there was another house there. So then they moved to that house, which was, they called that the Pololu house. And then when my brother and sister needed to go to school, they floated on the raft with the kerosene light in the front through the tunnels, bringing their um, whatever little belongings they had. And um, there would be a lantern in the front on this raft, and they would float down, and then that would be the next stop on where we would live. So then um, we ended up in Waiapuka, and that's where the rest of us were born. But the Pololu Trail to where you will find there's a, an arched bridge, and it's called, um, I don't know the Hawaiian name for it, but we call it Twin Falls. That was the distance from there to the flume numbers, number six, is where we managed and cleaned. Well, for those, of, for those people not living in Havi, Hawaii, which is where this show is coming from, which is on the big island of Hawaii. Nani, can you tell us, give us some context for someone who may not know this area. What does that mean, the third? Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> or even ditch. When I came, you know, I, when I first came to this area, a ditch to me was kind of a hole next to the side of the road. Okay. So for people maybe who aren't familiar with the area, can you give us just a little description? All right. Well, when the sugar fields, uh, sugar plantations started here on this island, they, they needed um, water to, to um, irrigate the fields because sugar needs a lot of water. So they decided to build the Kohala Ditch. And the Kohala Ditch starts inside of the valleys, and I believe it's the Seventh Valley. And so... Um, and those are valleys at the far the, northern tip of the island. Right. And so the, um, they had Japanese workers who built these tunnels. And the work was completed in 1907. And, but they did by blasting through um, the valleys in the tunnels to make this waterway come through. And so at the same time, they had homes um, cabins in different parts of along this ditch so that there would be maintenance so to keep the water flowing so they would be single Filipino men in some cabins and the reason they were single was because um, it was hard work and they would have to ride mules in sometimes three and a half four five hours to get to the destination where they were stationed and so they would do water reports every day. And they had, so they had copper wires that would run through all the way from out in the Huffy 
out into that valleys, and it would be this crank form. So it would be a private thing. It would be like a one long, one short crank, and that was our phone number. But that was how the reports would come in to how much water was flowing through. So that was the only connection you would have would be either to another cabin or to the office. So it sounds like you were probably off-grid, huh? <laughs> Very much so. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what feels right for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I, I lived or I loved the way I lived. Mm-hmm. Um, we lived quite primitively because there was, we had kerosene lamps and kerosene stoves. And um, we had a furo. A furo is a Japanese style of um, heating water for your baths. And so the cabins had that. And um, it was a, a really, really good time. There was no one, that, no one lived around us for about two miles. What did you do for food? Well, we were food gatherers. That was the side. Um, that was an, an, the way we lived. Uh, m- for people who lived during the plantation times, they know that when the plantation couldn't uh, grow any cane on that area, it would usually be a ravine. Um, they would lease it out. So it would be maybe $7 a year or something. I can't remember what it was. But so you had to be responsible for fencing the area and you could raise your life, livestock. And because we lived in the mountains, my father, um, from the time that he was young, he was born in 1913, um, he there he came from a family of 12 and they it was really hard living for them so he learned to train dogs for hunting at the age of 14 he was hunting on his own so he became so good at that but again i want to tell the people who are um today back when i was little there were very, there wasn't very much pigs because everybody were hunters. So sometimes several hunters would be tracking the same pig. It's not like today. My father would be in hog heaven. <laughs> Literally. If he, if, he, if he could go right outside and shoot a pig, you know. So my father trained dogs, one to be a tracker the one to be small and fast to chase the pig and to get the pig's attention. And he would yap, 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 just because he's little. And then there would be one or two that came behind him, and they were the grabbers. So my father trained them to just grab the ears or the back of their hind of their legs, their hind legs, so that they would keep the pig um, 
in one area. They'd stop it, and the pig would be now fight, trying to fight them, but they're circling this pig and keeping its attention until my father would come, and then we'd have yeah. pigs. So we grew up with Kalua pig. We grew up with smoked pork. When we would, when we would um, kill a cow, we would slice the cow into all these pieces, into, to, into strips. And then we would either put um, a terry sauce on it or a, a ginger garlic salt sauce. That's the whole cow now. And then we would marinate it overnight in these big um, galvanized pans they call pakini. And then in the morning, he'd fill it in 100-pound rice, white rice bags, and we would hang it in our garage till, till the, like the liquid came through the bag. And then we would make a day out of this we would go down to Kapa'a. And when, instead of making that turn, once you get right down to the ocean, instead of making that turn to go to where the um, pavilions are, straight ahead are these flat, flat rocks. So we take a broom and we'd sweep all of the rocks, clean the rocks, and then we would lay these strips of beef on the rocks, the flat rocks, and we'd bring these fresh bamboo sticks that still had the leaves on, and we would be like sentinels. He would set us on so much distance on the rocks, all of us children, and we would chew the flies, but a lot of times there wouldn't be very many flies because there was a lot of wind, there was a lot of sun, and so about after four hours, you flip that beef, and now you're getting what we call pipi kaula, which is pipi is cow, the cattle, and kaula is rope. So it's like rope beef, and it's half dried, and it was the best. <laughs> so almost like a jer homemade jerky. Yeah. But mm -hmm. it wasn't tough mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the the strips were quite thick, mm -hmm. almost like a tri-tip cut. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then we'd take it home, and we had another house in the village in New Lee, so it had power, and but we didn't live there. So it was just like a weekend house where we would come down and do gardening, but most of our time we were up at Vayapuka, and we would be... Um, living there and working there. Mm -hmm. And were you growing any food? My father grew um, taro, watercress. Um, everything else was wild because we could just go out and gather. So what kind of wild things did you gather? Oh, gosh, you know, one of the things that I'm... Every time I make this, I, I'm thanking my mom because this business that I have now, she taught us how to make um, guava juice. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So we would, when guava was in season, mm-hmm. wild guava, we'd go pick it and, and then we would prepare it to make this juice. Mm-hmm. And that's what I use today. I mm-hmm. mean, when it's in season, I go mm-hmm. out and I gather a whole pile, I make gallons of it and mm-hmm. I freeze it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's a, a savings for me. So mm-hmm. that, um, there was ho'i'o, uh, hapu'u. Hapu'u is another for kakuma. Um, we would gather that in the, in the season. Um, Hoiyo grows anytime it's wet. You're going to have that. What does it look like? Is Hoiyo is a fern shoot. It's a fern. It's a fern shoot. Uh-huh. And the hapu'u is the tree fern. Oh. So the tree ferns that you find in volcano, mm-hmm. those are the ones that they come around late March and April. Mm-hmm. And the, that's when a lot of the shoots come out. Like mm-hmm. there will be like three, four, five. So then it's okay to go and pick this mm-hmm. because there's other shoots that's going to be bringing, you know, be um, mm-hmm. growing. But when it's not in season, maybe you get one, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. growing. So you mm-hmm. don't want to mess with that. Mm-hmm. But when there's plentiful, but it's to me, it's a delicacy now. Yeah. Um, but it's very acidic. Mm-hmm. So you have, when you're cooking it and you're boiling it, you have to put it outside because mm-hmm. it, it, it will really, really burn your eyes. And then mm-hmm. the process of just cutting it up afterwards and, and soaking it and then throwing out the water and doing it one more time. And then, hey, you have this. You can stockpile it in your freezer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's good for the whole year. Mm-hmm. You know, so Probably incredibly nutritious, too. I would think so. Mm-hmm. I know it's delicious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and then there was the shrimp, the opai, mm-hmm. the little shrimp. Was that in the ditch? That was in the ditch and in the streams when I was young. Mm-hmm. But then when about 1969 or 1970, I believe, was when the Tahitian prawns came through. Mm-hmm. And then when they came in, they started to eat the, mm-hmm. the, the native mm-hmm. opai. Mm-hmm. And um, so... We started catching them, you mm-hmm. know, but in the olden days, when luau's were prominent and everybody, it was just a custom to always celebrate mm-hmm. for everything mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. People would come to my father because we lived Mauka and to ask um, Mauka, sorry, Mauka is up, up so towards the mountain and... Um, so uh, they would ask him if he would if he would go and catch these shrimp. So we, from the time I was little, and my sisters, my brother, we always went with my dad to catch this. And sometimes you can start early as eight o'clock in the morning mm. and end at six. Mm. You know, when the daylight's getting down and sometimes you're catching in the rain or whatever's going happening and sometimes you're shivering and but you have to stay till you get enough for this party because mm-hmm. people are counting on you for that. Sometimes you have to go several times to get it. But now it's pretty sad because you can't get that. But one of the combinations that the old Hawaiian people would eat would be the raw mountain shrimp, which is maybe two inches at the most, mm-hmm. and it would be raw. With that and, 
and the hoio, which is the fur, um, the fern shoots. They would mix that together, and that would be an authentic Hawaiian dish. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, we that's we gathered that for a long many years. Um, so it sounds like you were a hard worker from a very young age. You know, that's all I pretty much know is mm-hmm. because my father wanted boys and he just his fir- first son and only son. Mm-hmm. And as he kept having girls, he just decided I'm going to raise my girls like boys. Mm-hmm. So there was no, oh, you, you're in the house or, you know, you mm-hmm. go out and you, we're mm-hmm. working, we're mm-hmm. building fences and mm-hmm. we're doing whatever needed to be done, repair mm-hmm. fences, catching pigs with along with him. Mm. And well, the, the crazy part is sometimes he would say, we're going to take this one live. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'm sitting on the mule, and we, and we see this pig just going, and my father jumps on the pig, and it could be like 200 pounds. It's pretty big. And he says, Nani, bring the rope. No, no. So I'm thinking to myself, I have to jump off the mule and give him the rope. But I am more afraid of him than I am of the pig. <laughs> so I'm going to go give him the rope. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So how long did you stay on the mountain? Well, not long enough. <laughs> I, um, I left when I was 11. And um, there was no need for my mom's work there on the ditch anymore. They were changing things. So being that she ended up then worked at the plantation, uh, and her job was to follow the the seed cutter that was going, or it would drop the seeds Mm -hmm. in the grooves of the lines to plant, and my mom would come behind and, and use the hoe and cover mm-hmm. the dirt over the um over the seeds over the seeds mm-hmm. and i want to call it pula pula <laughs> <laughs> that's what i know it as mm-hmm. but anyway so then so we moved to that house that we had mm-hmm. where we would store our food because mm-hmm. we had a f- freezers there mm-hmm. and um, i was not a happy camper mm. i cried i cried i wanted to go back up Mm. Because I, we, I could swim every morning. I could swim every day. Mm. I jumped. This is um, not a good thing, but this is what I did. For um, I used to jump in the ditch mm. in the morning mm-hmm. and swim along as my mom was um, going down to read the the um, the charts for the water. Mm-hmm. And she says, "Don't you go in there." But that was where I wanted to be, you know, talking with her, swimming as I'm going. And I would cry if she would, because I was uh, two years younger than my sister. So, and I didn't go to kindergarten. So I was home till I was about five. So she would tell me to take a nap and then um, 
Sometimes she'd go and get the check the water by herself in the afternoon, and I and I'd get up and I'd be so upset after. Well, mom, isn't it time to go and read the chart? And she goes, Oh, I did it already. And then I would cry because <laughs> I didn't get to swim. She said, You swam this morning, you know. So. But you loved it. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved it. When we mm-hmm. saw people coming up on on the um, trucks to go to work, we would h- run and hide in the fields, in the cane fields. So we were hiding from people. Mm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it was pretty. We lived like about 30 years bef- um, before. Before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. the next people that were my age. Right, right. So um, I just, for me, it was just perfect. Mm-hmm. And I, I, and that's why I, where I live now, it's, I wanted the space. I didn't want to be around people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why I mm-hmm. worked to get, to where I am, so that yes. it reminds me mm-hmm. of where I grew up, mm-hmm. and I built a garden mm-hmm. that reminds me of where I grew up, because mm-hmm. the stream ran through mm-hmm. where we lived mm-hmm. w- in my young age. So, Well, that's quite a story. So, uh, what happened next? Once we came down... Well, uh, it was different. It was different. Then, but we did have electricity. We did have TV then, you know. But, but still, we still continued to work. Now we're in, we're managing more of gardening. Um, they, we had two acres where we lived. So we had a huge garden, but still on weekends we would do um, the kind of work like, okay, it's time to go and smoke pork, so we're going to go and do that. And when my dad smoked pork, uh, he would fill a freezer sometimes to where there was meat for like 12 pigs. Mm. And then... When he says, okay, we're going to smoke this weekend, it was the whole weekend that we smoked. And it was, um, the the smoker was like a size of a single bed. Mm-hmm. And it was on racks and on wheels. So we would, it would have shelves and we would slide that like racks, like single, like the size of single beds, about three racks. And we would hang the meat on clips so that they are on these, um, like, what do you call them? Screening, like screening. Uh-huh. And, um, but thick wire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we would hook the meat up on that screen so it would line up and then the, the, the bottom would have this, the smoke. Mm-hmm. And so it was like all weekend because mm-hmm. there was so much to do. Mm-hmm. But that was what my father was uh, all about, was always feeding people, mm-hmm. um, because times were tough then, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. like, and he always said, you know, if you have food, you're, you're rich. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and so he had friends that they worked together, 
together um, all the time, three or four of them, um, and they would go out and they would gather things together. So, and then they would share with their friends. So it was always about Lao Lima, mm -hmm, many hands, mm -hmm, make mm -hmm. light work and just sharing. Mm -hmm. mm. Oh my goodness. Well, we are, it's probably time for a station break. <laughs> so we are listening to Nani Hussis Benson. She's telling us some fascinating stories about her childhood here in North Kohala on the Big Island of Hawaii. We will be back in just a moment to hear more. Woman, sister, do you hear me? You are the giver of life. Your blood is This is Isla Allgood of Women's Voices. Tune in on Monday and Wednesday from 4 till 6 p.m. to listen to women from around the world, around Hawaii, songs with positive and empowering messages on KNKRLP 96.1 FM, Monday and Wednesday, 4 to 6 p.m. Aloha, North Kohala. Kohala Cares has moved its weekly food drive from Sushi Rock to the Hub parking lot. Those in need can drive to the parking lot and pick up a bag of groceries. Pickup begins at 4.30 every Wednesday. Please wear a mask. Donations, especially produce, will be accepted Tuesday from 1.30 to 4 and Wednesday from 3 to 4.30. We want to thank all our donors and volunteers for making all this happen. Remember, we're all in this together. Mahalo. Aloha, this is Isla. And Mikkel Anna. And we would love to invite you to join us for Activated Intuitive Talk Story. Yes, join us the first Wednesdays of each month from 3 to 4 p.m. Tune in locally at 96.1 FM or live stream from anywhere at knkr.org. And Isla, where would people go if they'd like to tune in to previous shows? I'm so glad you asked because they are located on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts under Intuitive Talk Story. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And we look forward to igniting with you soon. Aloha, North Kohala. It's Holly Allgood back here on Tutu Story at KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. I have Nani Hussey Svensson here today. We heard some incredible stories about her childhood on the mountain. And Nani, one of the things I want to ask you about is your connection to flowers. Um, you didn't mention any flowers, and I, that's a special love of mine. Tell me about your connection to flowers. Well, where we lived up at Hawaiapuka, um, we had beautiful gardenia tr flowers, mm. plants, and we had a tree, I want to say was about eight feet tall, and it grew so well. And, and then there was a spot on this way to Pololu that had this wild gladiola. They were, they were um, quite prolific, but then there was another gladiola that sat on a hill and every once in a, 
when it was the season, which and as being a young child, I didn't know. But it would pop up, and when we'd be passing, I would see this gladiola on this hill, and I would like, oh, let's stop and pick it. I had this romance with flowers from when I was a child. And when we also had, like I said, we had the garden down in the village, my mom grew um, African daisies, and they were popular at one time. And um, so my mom had 14 different colors. Mm. And so we grew flowers because we had our own family graveyard. And my father made sure that the f there were flowers for the graves. So we, I had all these flowers, and I knew that it made me happy. So when I started going to school and the gardenias would be in bloom, I would take it to my teacher. And my teacher, the response that I had from her, she was so happy, right? And I noticed this from as a young child. So all along the way, whenever I had flowers, I would take it to my teacher, and I even did this until I graduated from high school. And um, some of the other kids, classmates, would tease me that I was just trying to get a better grade, but that was only because I knew it made other people happy. And so um, I, was, I got married when I was young, right out of high school, and I, and I because I did that, I told my parents that I didn't want to go to school to extend my um, uh, learning because I thought it wasn't fair to them. And I decided I wanted to get married. So, um, you know, I felt like, oh, I don't know anything. And I was reading this um, Better Homes and Gardens magazine because I liked them. And there was a little ad to do correspondence course on floristry. And I thought, well, that's something I can do. And I thought, I inquired and I said, it's $10 a month. I can do that. I'll go mow somebody's lawn and plant my f more flowers so that I can practice with what I'm doing. So I ended up taking this correspondence course, which was like a half-inch ad, and it really um, helped me get the basics for flower design. And I, because I'm half Japanese, Okinawan, I should say, I had this thing, I think it just came from genetics, about simplicity. And they said, and this course said simplicity is often the window to beauty. And so I kind of remembered that. And But anyway, my marriage only lasted for seven years. And um, then I thought, I need to do something. Now I need to go to school. And so I went back to school, and I took business, but only for one year. And I knew I wanted to become a florist, and so um, Aluliki, which is a Hawaiian uh, entity that helps helps Hawaiians, got me connected with a Hawaiian florist, and they would pay for part of my schooling. So I worked in a Hawaiian 
florist shop as a lane maker and then learning other skills. And once, once this woman saw that I, I, she had taken me as far as she could, she sent me to another Hawaiian florist. So I learned in Hilo and then boldly and bravely I decided I'm coming back to Kohala after a year didn't, of business, and I opened up a little store right next to Takata's store. It was Mr. Domingo had a, uh, a Filipino man had a Domingo store, and he was elderly, and he was cutting up his grocery store into little cubicles. And... Uh, when I saw that I was still in Hilo going to school, still going to the flower shop and working, I think that place became available in March of 1983. And I saw it and I said, this is the spot that I need this flower shop at. So I went and the rent was $100 a month. And so I said, I want it. And so I rented it and kept it empty until I could come back after school. So in July of 1983, I opened up my first flower shop, or my only flower shop. In downtown Havi. In downtown Havi. And uh, it was amazing. Well, tell us what made it amazing. Well, um, you know... I used to go to the grocery store at Takata's, and I used to ask. And sometimes they had some proteas in there, and I asked him, why don't you bring in flowers? And he said, because they don't sell. They don't really sell. It's too perishable. And I thought, I'm going to do this. So Shiro Takata told me it's not going to work. And what happened was, because there was so uh, limited amounts of travel still at that time, and women working at the hotel and bringing in their tip money, I brought in plants. I brought in flowers that they couldn't have. And they just came and spent their tip money. They wanted flowers for their hair to wear in the hotel when they went to work, so I'd make these little short hakulays, hakulay, short. And they would buy that for them. They would buy the plants that I was bringing in for the hanging plants, flowering plants. And um, I had a line. And whenever it was a holiday, I had a long line that would go to past the Cotta store sometimes people waiting in line to get their flowers because I have to get my wife something otherwise I'll be in the doghouse it's Valentine's <laughs> Day you know and I remember my first my first Mother's Day I I remember crying I, I was crying and my husband now Don was answering the phone <laughs> And why I was crying as I was making these flowers was because I had so many orders mm. previously that needed to be filled. 
and I was just the only designer. And so I'm having like making like 30, 40 bouquets. Oh, my goodness. And then I'm making for something that would um, fill for people who walked in, right? Besides what I already had to make for people that place their orders. So I thought, I, I, I kind of remember, I'm pretty good with remembering numbers. So it was like 17 or 18 arrangements that I made. I had spent the whole night staying there working. And when the door opened, you know, and the women came in, oh, I need one for my mother. I need one for my grandmother. I need one for my auntie. You know, so somebody, just one person is buying five pieces. And in, in minutes, what I had worked on was gone. And now I had people waiting. And I remember, I can't do this, you know. But I survived. I did it for four years. And in that time from opening that uh, flower shop, the following year, I married my husband, Don, and, um, and we had children. So I had two children while I was in the flower shop. And my son, Keola, who is at the trailer, he would be in this little um, walker in the afternoon, and he would roll over and pluck the the, the nose off of the anthurium, you know, oh, no. and pluck. <laughs> and then his babysitter would find rose petals in his, in his diaper. <laughs> so I thought when I got, uh, I sold my business after four years, two weeks before I had my daughter because I said I couldn't do it anymore. So, um, but it was a really uh, wonderful time. I got to do, um, I got it to be successful. And I just still do flowers, but on the side. And mm -hmm. and now it's not the same. I don't. I I can say no. I can say no because they do it from home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that's another unbelievable story. So after, so you went. Did you you stop working altogether and raise your children? Well, <laughs> I we I tried to figure out what could I do at home while my children were there. So I think we were, were maybe the fourth vacation rental that opened up in 1990. Mm -hmm. And I ran that for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And I said, that was enough. You were the first, uh, you were before Airbnb. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Um, that was pretty interesting. That was one of the catalysts that made me decide that I needed to buy property because it was in the 90s and I would always ask people when they were coming, Oi, what brings you to Kohala if they were staying for a couple of weeks? And they said, we're here to buy land. Mm. And I kept hearing it and hearing it mm -hmm. and hearing it and it started to frighten me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Oh my goodness, the property's going to be gone. Mm -hmm. So I made a bold move and 
Mike Gomes was a land manager at the time. And I said, am I crazy to step foot in here to think that I can buy property? Or am I crazy if I don't even try? And Mike Gomes said to me, Nani, I will help anyone who wants, who's from Kohala, who wants to buy property. Nice. Mm-hmm. So you, you started doing, you bought it, and then how did you decide to do rentals to visitors? Um, well, in, in 1990, <laughs> in 1990, we built a duplex, and we built it to be long-term rentals. But after a year of renting it out, I saw so much damage that I thought, I can't have this. This is my investment. So I tried, and I thought, there were some people coming and asking, because I had a little studio on the side that we had built for my mother and father-in-law who who visited from Canada at least maybe twice a year. But the rest of the time, it was empty, empty, and it was fully furnished, a studio for them when they wanted to come. And so people knew about it, so they would ask us, oh, you know, I have family coming. Can they stay at your place? And so, of course, that kind of sparked something. So when it, I saw that my rentals were getting damaged and I was thinking, gosh, I have a big mortgage on this property, I, and I have, and I'm seeing all this damage. I decided I was going to try and turn it into a rental, short-term rental, short-term rental, mm-hmm. and then that, and then I could be there for my kids at the same time. So mm-hmm. I became the cleaner. I became the breakfast cook sometimes for a tour group that was Eye of the Whale at the time, mm-hmm. which was Mark Grandoni. Mm-hmm and Beth Godoni, and um, so ended up, uh, they secured four days out of the month, but I had to make breakfast, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he, I needed to supply rooms for 10 people, mm-hmm. so I was able to do that So with the duplex, mm-hmm. and, um, and I made breakfast. Mm-hmm. for them mm-hmm. and it went on for like hmm, I don't know eight ten years like that maybe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I thought wow this is this is pretty good if all I do is rent to them I can manage my you know manage my um, paying my mortgage so mm-hmm. so Nani I know you're also very famous for developing a beautiful family garden can you tell us about that? Hmm. <laughs> well, remember how I said people were saying they're coming? People kept coming and coming. They're going to buy land. That's when they started to create um, ecotourism. And they started having to where now people are hiking hiking the trails that I grew up clearing all the time. And all of a sudden, I didn't belong on the trail. Mm -hmm. That was hard. Mm -hmm. That was really, really hard. It made me angry. And then there was drugs coming in, people, you know, affecting my own family. And I thought, 
why can't I go back to what I came from? The simple. Yeah, I need this feeling, you know. I don't want to be excluded from what I know. And I don't want to, people were putting a price on everything. If you didn't have money, you couldn't go here, you know. And that was rough. So I came up with this crazy idea because I had bought my brother's share of property, which was an abandoned um, tarot field. And it sat there for 10 years empty in when, when I bought it. And the, how I could buy it was from selling the flower shop. So it's kind of funny how they kind of all kind of pieced together. But I, so I bought that from my brother and it, and it sat there. And then as things were changing and I was just getting really angry, depressed, sad, just sad, just so full of emotion, I thought, I am going to go and restore this place because there's a stream running through. I'm going to ask my husband to build me a little cabin so that I can go and run away and it'll feel like I'm going to where it's mine and nobody can tell me that I can't step, you know, that I shouldn't be there. And I was really mad and I thought, the truth is, if you had money, you could go on the trail. So the tours were for people who could afford, what was it then, $110 or something. And I thought, we're getting really cut out from what we know, what we love. And so I said, I'm going to make a place that nobody can pay money to come to. Money is not the issue. And I'm going to say, no, you have to be local to be on here. You have to be local to come down. Because that that was the bitterness that I had. And, um, but you know that garden changed me? Mm, Changed a lot of people. It changed me first. Because while I was building it and being so upset, it, it softened me. And when it came time for curious people, all the curious people who wanted to help were white. Mm. And once it got built, and it got built by people with drug addictions Mm -hmm. and curious people. So when that little bridge got built to cross that stream, it was like I was building a bridge to cross over for my own healing. And once I found out that it moved a lot of local people 
but it also moved everyone about their needing a place to feel the earth and feel spirit and feel connected. And so all of a sudden it was like, I can't be selfish. I can't have it just for me. And it does take an army of people to keep it the way it is. But the garden needs to be beautiful to transform people. Mm-hmm. You can't have a garden that doesn't have um, flowers, that doesn't have food, that doesn't have stone sculptures, that doesn't have stream running through. It needs all those components to get a person where they need to be, to open themselves, to receive spirit, Mm -hmm. to feel that connection Mm -hmm. with a higher power and know as universal as it is that it exists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I'm going to mention Shiro Takata again. Shiro Takata came down to the garden one day and he told me, when you are out and you can see the ocean and you can see as far as you can see, your mind goes and travels as far as it can. But when you come and you walk down into the garden and you come down in this little space, everything comes back to you. Mm. So it's not about anything else but you. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, I thought, I'm going to remember this. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so a magical garden where people can find themselves. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think it's built by the intention. The intention is very, very important. Mm -hmm. on why you have that garden, Mm -hmm. what are you doing with that garden, how are you sharing with the garden. And I truly believe that if people can get to that point, like I said at the top, I have these boards, storyboards that are, I'm so fortunate to have that was donated to the garden by Bill Davis. Mm -hmm. It says, so that you can become a beacon of light, come to the garden, In the garden, you can become a beacon of light so that when you go out, you can spread that light. Mm -hmm. And that's the intention. Mm -hmm. And so it helps people um, try to, you know, to remember themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. We're almost out of time, Nani. So we only have five more minutes. I have about 15 questions I'd like to ask, but I'm wondering in terms of wrapping up our conversation for this hour today, is there anything, either advice you have for us? You've already given us lots of wonderful advice. Or anything you'd like to share with our audience before we go? I, I really believe 
with all my heart that each of us can transform not just ourselves but other people by living a Pono life, a righteous life as best we can, and to not just think of ourselves but to put others first as well. And that if we do that and our intention is for goodness, it it comes into an energy field that people around you can feel and that can be a ripple effect. And so I believe that to do, to, to try to live that way, and then you can be a blessing for not just your family, but for others. And for those who may not know what Pono means, could you give us just a little bit about that? To live Pono is to try to live as righteously as you can in doing the right thing, doing what is what feels best through your gut. And you know and, and, and that's something that is that feeling that you know. You always know right from wrong if you check with your gut, that gut feeling. Mm -hmm. So the na'au, mm -hmm. if it comes from there, then it's, it's porno. It's right. And just follow it. Mm -hmm. Well, Nani, this has been a riveting interview. I really appreciate you coming. I hope you'll come back. And, uh, you know, on behalf of the whole community, thank you for everything you do and for the the way you live in a very Pono way? Well, I try. <laughs> but thank you very much for having me. Uh, this is Holly Allgood saying aloha for Tutu's Talk Story. Join us next week.